Aloha. We're glad you've joined us for this Reunion Hawaii Church podcast. These teachings by our pastoral team are recorded live during our weekly services in Honolulu, Hawaii. We hope you will be blessed by this teaching. Uh, I, I keep my phone on me because we always have a glory pastor in the room who their, their sole job every Sunday is to hear what the Lord is doing in each and every moment. And I want to know, like, if the Lord's doing something. They just texted me and said they felt like someone had something physically stolen that was expensive. And the Lord's going to restore it and give you a replacement of that item. I actually felt as soon as I read that, that there's also a spiritual side to that where some of you have had things that were spiritually stolen that he's going to restore and give a double portion back. I, I, I love that. It, it's in the Psalms where it says that when they caught the enemy red-handed, he had to pay back seven times what he stole. So I think that tonight uh, you're going to get back more than what he stole from you. And we're going to keep going with this sermon series that I started a while back called God of the Impossible because he lives in impossibility. He laughs at impossibilities. He welcomes us into impossibilities. And we're going to continue where we left off last time. We talked about healing and Paul's thorn in the flesh. Do you remember that? It was a good one, wasn't it? No, I'm I enjoyed listening to myself that night. But again, when we're talking about healing, there are a few things, let me rephrase this, there are a few promises that Christians will actually fight against as hard as healing. We actually will tend to fight against this promise that God has given us. And again, it's very difficult to lay hold of his promises if you aren't sure what his will is. Uh, faith begins where the, where the will of God is known. Faith begins where the will of God is known. And in both Testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament, we're told that healing is explicitly laid out as a promise and a blessing to all of God's children. Are you a child of God? Yes, Guess what you're, you have claim to because you hold the keys to the kingdom? Healing. It's yours. And we absolutely believe that healing is in the atonement of Christ. Uh, that you actually have to work to remove scriptures to, to show that it's not in the atonement. But again, because some believers never see physical healing in their lives or have never seen much of it or haven't heard much about it, they'll begin to create a theology based on their lack of experience. And you can't do that. So if you are a believer and you don't get to see much healing or you don't get to see people, uh, sick people get well and body parts that ache get made well, you have two choices. You can either accept the word as true, and we need to adjust, or we can create theology based on our experience or lack of experience. You guys know the answer, right? There's no such thing as my truth in the kingdom. There's one truth, and it has zero reliance on your experience or my experience. So, Today, what I want to do is, over the past couple of years, we've looked at some types or some shadows from the Old Testament that actually point to Jesus. And we, we've talked about this word type. It's not like Jesus existed in disguise in this person and then came back, uh, you know, in the year zero to 33 and lived on the earth. No, he, he didn't actually live in those moments. Those were actual people. They just pointed to him. They were types. They were shadows foreshadowing. 
And a lot of these types of Christ or shadows actually point to the atonement. They point to what he paid for. Not just who he is, but what he paid for. And so tonight, I love to let scripture interpret scripture. You know, on the road to Emmaus, after Jesus had risen from the dead, he was talking with two of his disciples. And he, it says, for the entire journey, he explained to them how all of the Old Testament was about him. How many of you would love to hear that sermon? Oh my gosh. All right. So essentially, what we see all throughout the Old Testament, we see things in the physical that point to a greater spiritual coming reality. And these are the types or the shadows. And they, again, they point to Jesus. Types can be people. So uh, we're not going to go too heavily into these, but we know that Abraham is a type of Christ. He represents Jesus. Like when he brought his son Isaac up on the mountain and was about to kill him, uh, the, the ram was in the bushes. That's a type of Christ where it was like this substitutionary death instead of the son. Um, a few months ago, we talked about Samuel, right, from the book of First and Second Samuel, and how his life perfectly mirrored Christ. It was like this foreshadowing of Jesus long before Jesus ever came onto the scene. Um, some of you all know who Joseph in the Bible is. Not Jesus' dad, Joseph, but Old Testament Joseph, who uh, his father gave him this many-colored coat. His brothers became jealous. They, they sold him into slavery. Did you know Joseph is a very strong picture of Christ? So, for example, Joseph was a shepherd. Jesus is the great shepherd. Oh, you guys already know the answers. And again, the lesser always points to the greater, the physical than the spiritual. Uh, both Joseph and Jesus, the Bible says, were loved by their father. We know we see that in the life of Jesus. Both came from an elevated place and became a slave. Uh, Joseph was removed from his elevated place of status because of the sins of his brothers. Jesus left his place of status also because of the sins of his brothers, but it wasn't by force. It was for the joy set before him that he chose the cross. Both Joseph and Jesus were betrayed. Both were stripped of their garments. Joseph was stripped of his coat by his brothers. Um, when Jesus was being crucified, the, the guards stripped him of his clothing and cast lots for it. Both Jesus and Joseph were sold for silver. Right? His brother sold him and got silver for Joseph. And with Jesus, who got paid silver? Judas, right? And both Joseph and Jesus were, were sold and got silver. And what they were paid was for the price of a slave for both of those guys. Both Joseph and Jesus, Jesus were falsely accused. Um, both of these two men, Joseph and Jesus, uh, they were actually condemned with two other criminals, both of them. And in both stories, Joseph and Jesus, with the two other criminals, one was given death and one was given life. Isn't that crazy? Because we think about Jesus on the cross and one of them rejected him. The other Jesus said, I'll see you in paradise today. Both Joseph and Jesus were 30 years old when they started their ministry. Uh, Joseph served in prison and later he was elevated to sit second in command at the right hand of Pharaoh. Well, Jesus didn't serve in prison. He robbed prison and Hades. And then he was elevated and seated at the right hand of God. Both Joseph and Jesus were saviors to their people. Joseph helped save the Jewish, pe Jewish people, and Jesus saved all the people. Uh, Joseph 
was not recognized by his brothers at their first meeting. And it wasn't until their second meeting that Joseph was recognized by his brothers. Well, how many of you know that Jesus was also not recognized by his brothers, the Jews? But it's at his second coming, the Bible says, that the Jews will recognize him as the Messiah. The Bible says that all of Egypt bowed to Jesus. Sorry, to Joseph. But to Jesus, every knee will bow. So you see that these types represent Jesus, but they're not Jesus. They're shadows, right? Joseph wasn't Jesus in disguise showing up a few thousand years early. His life simply shows God's ability to point to the ultimate Savior, the ultimate coming reality, because the lesser realities always point to the greater realities. So types can be people. We just went through a bunch of those. But did you know that types can also be things? They can be events. So, for example, we talked about this in the past, but Noah's Ark is a type of Christ. The boat itself was a type. In the same way that God saved Noah and his family who entered the ark from judgment, the ark is a type of Christ. And so God saves all who are in Christ. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3. I'll, I'll just show you the scripture. For Christ also died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not from the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. That's pretty cool, right? Did you know? I'm guessing you knew this one. The Passover lamb from the Old Testament is a type of Christ. When Israel was in captivity in Egypt, God actually judged the Egyptians for killing all of their firstborn children. He sent judgment. And God's judgment actually passed over the Hebrew people if they had sprinkled the blood of a lamb over their doorposts. The blood was co that covered their doorpost protected them from judgment. You see where this is going, right? And during this Passover ceremony, the Jews refused to eat any yeast. In fact, God told them, get all of the yeast out of your households completely. Well, Paul says that Christ is our Passover lamb who is slain for our sins. And it was the blood of the lamb of God that's able to deliver us from judgment. Paul helps us understand that just like the Jewish people had to clean house of yeast uh, because yeast represents sin, we too need to do the same. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 5. Paul says, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So I know we're flying through this. I just want to make this very well understood in this house, this idea that the, the physical points to the spiritual. First, all these physical things happen, and they're pointing to these greater spiritual realities that were all fulfilled in Christ. So when we look at these types, 
We need to examine the surrounding events with some of these types because they'll often show us greater realities about Jesus. And it's important to see if things change after these stories, after these events, because if they do, it usually points to a greater covenant that Jesus came to establish. Or we need to see what promises are attached to these types because Jesus came to give us better promises than what all of the Old Testament promises were combined. So again, God of the impossible, what does this have to do with healing? Well, tonight we're going to look at an Old Testament type of Christ and what it entails. And this type of Christ is actually the parting of the Red Sea. Did you know that the parting of the Red Sea is actually a picture of Jesus thousands of years before he walked the earth? The Red Sea was the final act of deliverance to the Israelites after they left slavery in Egypt. And it's one of the greatest acts of deliverance in the entire Bible, and it demonstrates God's miraculous saving power. You guys know the story. I'm going to give you the short version because we don't have time to read like 27 chapters. But the short version is this. Israel is led out by Moses out of Egyptian captivity. And Pharaoh is pursuing the Israelites through the desert. They come to the Red Sea, and they're in between a rock and a hard place. They can't cross the sea. It's a big sea. And they can't turn around because the Egyptian armies are encamped behind them. They're chasing them. Biblically speaking, Pharaoh and Egypt always represent Satan and his dark forces. So when they come to the sea, they're stuck between the ocean, which usually symbolizes death, peril, fear, chaos, and Satan and his dark forces. We know that Satan is like a roaring lion who's looking for those he'll devour. And this is, there are actually types of Satan too. And Egypt and Pharaoh were types of Satan and these dark forces. And so they're chasing like a roaring lion looking to devour these Israelites. And when they get to the Red Sea, Moses said to his people, he says, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. The Bible says that when this happened, an angel of God who was in front of the Israelite army moved behind them, and a pillar of cloud that was in front of them moved behind Israel. So they come between Israel and Egypt, and and no one can see each other. And so Moses lifts up his hands over the Red Sea, and it says that a strong east wind came and blew all night, and it miraculously splits the Red Sea in half. It says the waters stand up and make this pathway wall up on either side, and it says that there was a dry path of ground across this ocean, essentially, that Israel walked across on. So the Israelites walked through on this dry ground, and I need you to note, they walked through on dry ground. It wasn't wet ground. How many of you know if the Lord splits an ocean, that that ground's probably still supposed to be wet, but it was dry ground that they walked through. Again, biblically, the sea usually represents death, darkness, fear, peril. And for Israel to walk through on dry ground was a sign and a symbol that not even a remnant of death and fear and darkness was remaining in Israel's salvation. 
As we'll see in some upcoming weeks, uh, sin is to the soul as sickness is to the body. And one of the byproducts of of the fall and of sin was sickness and disease. And so when Israel walks across this Red Sea on dry ground, there's not even a drop of what was previously there. That's an impossibility. But again, he's a God of the impossible. This is who he is. This is how he functions. This is how he maneuvers. As Pablo was talking about last week, redemption is an impossibility. That was the point of the law. You can't do this without a savior. That's what the law shouts. And yet Jesus came to fulfill the law and he conquered sin and he conquered death and he conquered disease and he conquers all the powers of the enemy. Who is the devil and all the powers of the enemy in the Exodus story here? It's Pharaoh and the Egyptians. It's also very important that it says that the Lord sent an east wind, a strong east wind all night long to separate these waters. Now, to give you context why that's, why that's important, that it's an east wind, we're going to go back, way back, way, way back to the Garden of Eden, all the way to the beginning. The Garden of Eden, the garden itself, is a type of Christ. It's a picture of him. When Adam and Eve sinned, God sent them out of the garden, and he set up an angel, a cherubim, uh, with a, a flaming sword that was waving to prevent them from re-entry into the garden. You guys know the story, right? Okay. Just seeing if I'm talking to Christians out there. When God sends them out, it says that he sent them east. And from that time on, there's a biblical trend that's established throughout Scripture that moving east is always bad. Moving west is always good. Time after time, when mankind goes east, it's really bad. And time after time, when mankind goes west, it's great results. This is another type that's showing up. Moving westward is is symbolic of moving back to the garden, moving back towards the Christ. Moving east is symbolic of moving away from God's plan, God's design, moving away from Jesus When Cain was sent out from the garden, he was sent east. And if you know anything about Cain and his lineage, it wasn't good what happened to him after the garden. When Abraham and Lot, later in Genesis, uh, they split up to claim land, Abraham goes west. And how many of you guys know that Abraham, who's a type of Christ, really great things happened to Father Abraham? Guess which direction his cousin Lot went? east towards Sodom. If you know anything about biblical history, didn't end well in Sodom, okay? When Israel went into exile in Babylon, exile is bad. Guess which direction they headed? East. When Israel came out of exile and returned to rebuild Jerusalem under Nehemiah and Ezra, guess which direction they headed? West. You see this trend. It's all throughout scripture. Moving west was this type of moving back towards the garden. When the wise men came to see baby Jesus, it says they came from the east. That means they were traveling west towards the Christ. This is is just chock full of types, right, and truths, because it represented mankind seeing the light and heading towards the light. They were headed west. Who is the light of the world? 
Jesus, right? They followed this light, a physical light in the sky, a star, and it led them to the light of the world. There's so many more throughout scripture, but you get what I'm saying, right? East, bad, west, good. So in Exodus, when the Israelites leave Egypt, they actually didn't go in a direct route. The Bible says that they went around Moab and they crossed the Jordan from east to west. They moved west. Is that good or bad? Good. Guess what happened when Israel's trying to cross a Red Sea? The enemy's behind them. Life doesn't seem to have a chance, but they're going west. They're headed towards the Christ. The Red Sea is a type of Christ. So it's very significant that when Egypt, or sorry, when Israel gets to the Red Sea, that God sends an east wind. An east wind comes from the east and blows west. Is that good or bad? It's real good because it split a sea in half and created dry ground for an entire nation to walk across. Who, scripturally, is represented by wind? The Holy Spirit. Who does the Holy Spirit always point us back to? Jesus. Why is West moving good? Because it points us to the, the garden, and the garden has the tree of life. Who is the tree of life? You, you guys see where we're going with this, right? It's wild. It's wild. People are like, the Bible is boring. No, no, no. You're boring. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the Bible is so fun. There's just, there's truth everywhere. So continuing with the Exodus story, Israel crosses on dry ground. There's not even a trace of the stuff that was there before. And the Egyptians follow says that God looks down from his cloud and he sends the Egyptian army into a panic. He clogs the chariot's wheels so it makes it difficult for them to drive. And the Egyptians panic and they say, let us flee from the Israelites for the Lord fights for them against us. I love this because God locked down on the Egyptians. He locked down on the enemy of his kids and he turns them into the fearful ones. And the, fear, the, one, the ones who used to operate in fear, the Egyptians who, who represent the, the armies of darkness, now they become fearful of the children of light. Darkness becomes scared of light. Do you see who this is pointing to? Yeah. So Israel gets across the Red Sea. They get to the other side. And Moses, again, who is another type of Christ, reaches his hands up over the Red Sea. And the waters crash back down on the Egyptians. On the Egyptians. And remember, Moses said, hey, those Egyptians that you see, you'll never see them again. And again, I'm asking you the same questions because I want you to get this. Who do Pharaoh and the Egyptians represent? Satan and right, demonic forces, dark forces. Moses says, you'll never see them ever again. Well, who did Jesus defeat once and for all? Yeah, Satan and all of his dark forces. One of the, this is one of the greatest moments of salvation in the Old Testament. And Israel, as you know, is a picture of the church. It says that believers have been grafted into the family of God. And it's this amazing moment of salvation and deliverance that points straight to Jesus and his bride. So what does this have to do with healing? Um, that, that whole 
The story happens in Exodus chapter 14. And immediately, when you turn the page of your Bible, you go to Exodus 15, right? 14, 15 is how it works. And to start Exodus 15, there's this beautiful moment immediately after crossing the Red Sea where Moses leads the entire nation in worshiping the Lord through song. And what he sings about is he recalls the testimony of what the Lord just did. It's this beautiful song. It's literally a song. He sings a testimony song. And that's beautiful. Right after they're done singing, it says Israel goes into the wilderness and for three days they have no water. And after three days they find some water, but they couldn't drink it because it's bitter. And it says the Israelites began to grumble against Moses and say, what will we drink? So Moses cries out to God and God shows him a log. And Moses takes the log and he throws it into the water and the water becomes sweet and they can drink it. And we say like, oh man, such strange Old Testament stories. Like, hey, look, there's a log. Maybe I should throw it in the water and it'll become sweet. I would love to know how God like explained that, if he explained it. But did you know that the log is another type of Christ? Jesus is the tree of life. The log represents the tree of life. And several times throughout scripture, we see Jesus beckoning people to come to him and take a drink. He he says, I'm the living water. Uh, You'll never thirst again. I'm the water of life. There's no cost to me. Come without cost. And so Moses throws this log into bitter water, this tree of life, and it becomes life-giving water again. It all points to Jesus. And this is where we get to healing. I want to show you this, this actual passage where he finds the log. So let's go to Exodus chapter 15. Then he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. There he made for them a statute and a regulation, and there he tested them. And he said, if you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you, which I have put on the Egyptians for I, the Lord am your healer. Then they came to Elam where there were 12 springs of water and 70 date palms and they camped there beside the waters. Leave that up there for a second. So when he says, I am the Lord, your healer, the actual language is, I am Jehovah Rapha. That's where that name comes from, is right here. Right after they cross the Red Sea, right after they worship the Lord through testimony, right after they can't find water, right after Moses purifies the water by throwing the tree of life in this water, okay? Jehovah Rapha. We've mentioned this multiple times, but the names of God are always indicative of two things. They tell us his nature, and they tell us his promises. His names are always his nature and his promises. In other words, it's who he is, it's what he does, it's what he's like, and it's what he likes to do. Whenever you hear his name, you know instantly who he is. Whenever you hear his name, you know what he likes to do. You know what what he's all about. And there's no exceptions to this rule. You cannot separate him from his nature. It's wild to me that God could have named himself anything he wanted in all of creation. 
And yet, in the Old Testament, he chose seven redemptive names to describe himself. And that word redemptive is actually important. Anytime we talk about something being redemptive, points right to Jesus. Because he's the redeemer. So listen to these seven redemptive names of God. I don't have a slide. You're just going to have to memorize these. Pakrim, you can test me if my Hebrew is pronounced accurately. Here, here are the redemptive names that God gives himself. He says, I'm Jehovah Shammah, the, the God who is there. The God who is there. He says, I'm Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. Jehovah Ra, the Lord is my shepherd. That's his name. He says, I'm Jehovah, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord your provider. I'm Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is your banner. He says, I'm Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. And then we get to what we just read. He says, I'm Jehovah Jireh, the God who heals you. The names of God point to his redeeming nature. God is revealed progressively throughout scripture until we get to Jesus, and then he's fully revealed. That's what the Bible says. That means all of God's names, that means his nature, all of his promises are revealed through Jesus. If we see, if we see it in God, it means Jesus walked it out because these are redemptive names and they point to Jesus as the redeemer. You with me? Okay. The atonement, the things that Jesus paid for, include the redemptive names of God. And again, God could have named himself whatever he wanted, but every time he gave one of these redemptive names, he used the word Jehovah. He didn't call himself, let me rephrase this, Jehovah in, in the Hebrew language is distinctive in referring to redemption. That's the association with the word Jehovah. It means the self-existent one who reveals himself. In other words, these seven redemptive names point to this continuous, increasing self-revelation of God leading to Jesus. The seven redemptive names that we just heard reveal him meeting every single need of man who is lost in his sin. All of his names, those seven names, they cover everything. Every need you'll ever have. And he's saying, I am those things. In other words, God is naming himself, I am the answer to all of your needs. It's important that we see this. He says, I am Jehovah Rapha. He doesn't call himself El Shaddai Rapha. He says Jehovah Rapha because it's pointing to the cross. And so when he says, my name is Jehovah Rapha, I am the God who heals you. The fact that he reveals himself as this, with this name covenant to Israel, immediately after crossing the Red Sea is so important. It's so important. Remember, the Red Sea is a type of Christ where they're passing through death. Jesus conquers death. He conquers all of his enemies. He brings salvation to all of the people. The Red Sea is that picture of salvation. And immediately after that salvation is accomplished, God reveals himself as healer. Jehovah Rapha. Can we go back to Exodus 15? I just want to read that one more time because there's something really important where it says, 
Uh, nope, go back. One more. That, one more. There he goes. Nope, never mind. <laughs> maybe it's two more, maybe it's ten more. But it says, there he made for them a statute and a regulation. In other words, right before he says, I am Jehovah Rapha, he's saying, guys, this is a statute. This is a law. This is a regulation. This is a way of the kingdom that I'm about to reveal to you. And it's that I am your healer. Does God ever break his own laws? When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the highest of prices. All of the names of God, the redemptive names of God, reveal what he paid for and the promises that are attached to them. Do you think that God ever goes against any of his names? Do you think that God sometimes doesn't feel like acting like his namesake? Do you think God ever limits himself based on any of the areas of his name? Does he have any limits in those areas? No, when God tells us his names, He's telling us who he is. He's telling us it's an identity statement. He's telling us areas that he wants us to trust him in. And he's saying, this is a regulation. This is a statute. This is a law of worshiping me. You have to trust me in these things. Look to me as these things. When God tells us any of his names, he's telling us what he longs to do. He wants to do those things. And listen, God can do whatever he wants. He can do whatever he wants. And he wouldn't have paid the highest of prices if he didn't want to do those things. Listen, God wants to be there because he's Shama. God wants to be your peace because he's Shalom. He wants to be your shepherd and care for you because he's Ra. He wants to provide for you because he's Jaira. He wants to cover you with his banner and lay claim to your life because he's Nisi. He wants to be your righteousness because he's Sidkenu. He wants to heal you because he's healer. He's Rafa. Listen, we can't be sure of six of the seven redemptive names of God and wonder about the seventh one. He doesn't break his own law. His name is Rafa. It's who he is. It's his being. You can't separate him. And he reinforces this later. He calls himself the balm of Gilead. He's like, I'm the medicine of the land. Jesus calls himself the physician. And, and the wild part to me is that God never does this out of obligation. He, he does it out of compassion and faithfulness. In other words, because he wants to. He wants to be those things for us. The names of God always show us his current attitude towards those things. You don't have to wonder, well, I don't know if he wants to be my righteousness today. I don't know if he wants to cover me today. You want me to say it? I'll say it. I don't know if he wants to heal me today. He does not waver. There are no shifting shadows in him. He doesn't change his mind on these things. He never abandons the heart or the will behind his names or his nature. He's unchanging. He's the same as he was a billion trillion years ago. He's going to be the same in a billion trillion more years. He never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I want to tell you that healing is in the atonement. It's in what he paid for. Let's go to James chapter 5. 
Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And, say and, and if he has committed sins, they'll be forgiven of him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you might be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. I want you to notice the result of the prayer of faith right up here. It's the healing of sickness and the forgiveness of sins. These aren't two separate prayers. It's not two separate, you know, things that we have to do. They're both paid for in the same breath. They're both available. They're free of charge. There is no begging involved in these verses. There is no twisting of God's arm in these verses. It was free and without measure. When we take communion, we're remembering what Jesus paid for in the atonement. It's a meal covenant. We're actually covenanting with the Lord when we take communion. That's why it's considered so serious. Like, don't do this. That's why we believe that only Christians should take communion because we're actually making a covenant with the Lord. And when we make this covenant, we're submitting to his lordship and the saving grace of Jesus. And we eat the bread and drink the wine, right? Like, that's the biblical example. They, they ate bread and drank wine. And I want you to notice that the bread and the wine are not two separate meals, it's one meal with two elements, an element of bread and an element of wine. That means that both of them are part of the same act. They're both part of the same promise. And we know that the wine represents this. Let's go to Luke 22. Jesus says, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the, in the, new, covenant, or is the new covenant in my blood. It's the new covenant of my blood. So what did the blood do? Let's leave that up there just for a second. What did the blood do? Well, we know that it cleansed us from all unrighteousness, right? We just saw his name was uh, Jehovah Sidkenu. I am the Lord, your righteousness. So his righteousness, this redemptive name actually comes into play here. It cleanses us from all the unrighteousness. The Bible says that Jesus became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. The blood is a fulfillment of this Old Testament type that we already talked about. It's the blood of the Passover lamb. The blood of the lamb that saved Israel from death and destruction and judgment, right? Without the shedding of the blood, there is no forgiveness. That's why the blood is important. But with the blood, we become righteous and holy in his sight. That's what the blood does. That's why we drink of the wine. But why the bread? Why the bread? Remember, two different elements, one meal, one act, one promise. Let's go to Luke twenty-two nineteen, the verse right before this. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What is the bread? His body. He says, This is my body, which was given for you. Well, how did Jesus give us his body? Well, if you were here two weeks ago, I talked about Isaiah 53 in 1 Peter chapter 2, where it says, by his stripes you are healed. By his stripes you were healed. Where were the stripes? On his body. On his way to Calvary, right, in this act of fulfillment, sorry, on the, on the way to Calvary, 
it's pointing to this fulfillment that we saw again like in the Red Sea. Jesus took the most horrific beating known to mankind. His beard was plucked from him. His bones were exposed. His flesh was ripped off his body. He became unrecognizable, the Bible says, because of this beating on his physical what? Body. Why? What was the purpose? By his stripes we are healed. It doesn't say by his blood we're healed. It says by the stripes on his body that we're healed. The bread is his body. The stripes on his body were for one reason, for our physical healing. By his blood we're forgiven, but by his stripes we're we're healed. A few months ago, I think it was in March, I talked about uh, the Old Testament type um, of Christ where it was talking about the innocent Lamb of God where um, Israel would send the scapegoat out into the wilderness and they would kill another goat. And we saw how this actually represented Jesus, how he took all of our punishment, both physically and spiritually, and that scapegoat was sent out and it was killed to bear our sickness and disease, the physical side of the fall. But it was also sent out to bear our sins and transgressions, the spiritual side of the fall. And then Isaiah says, surely our sicknesses he himself bore, and he carried our pain. And those words, we talked about this, bore our sickness and carried our pain. Those are substitutionary words. Where, where you take a heavy burden off of one person, remove it completely and put it on yourself. In other words, a complete removal of that thing. Sounds a lot like walking on dry ground across the Red Sea, doesn't it? Where there's not even a trace of those things anymore. The sacrificial scapegoat that carried all of our sin, all of our sickness away from God's people. Obviously, this points to Jesus. And, and there was this amazing trade at Calvary where sin and sickness were passed from us to him. The sin and the sickness that we deserved was given to the, the Lamb of God who was slain on Calvary. And the trade was this, salvation and health were passed from Calvary to us. It's the greatest trade in history. Can you guys stand with me? He's the God of the impossible. We said this before that the Christian life was never meant to be hard. It was meant to be impossible. We cannot do this without him, but we're not called to do it without him. In fact, we'll never be without him. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us, which suddenly makes the impossible very possible because that's where he lives. That's where he dwells. That's what he likes to do. And we've been praying this prayer. I don't know if you have, but a lot of us have been praying, God, take whatever you want, shake whatever you want, purify whatever you want. And man, he's been taking, he's been shaking, he's been purifying. And that's good, that's good. But what he's also taking away besides the sin and the sickness and all the things that, that he's paid for on Calvary, he's also taking away unbelief. 
And he's also shaking doubt. And he's also purifying understanding, this understanding about how good he is. He's purifying our understanding about how complete our salvation is and how final his promises are. He never takes and leaves us empty. He takes to give us something greater. Will you just pray with me? You don't have to close your eyes. I just find it so helpful because I want to look into his eyes. I'm not praying. I'm not agreeing with some preacher on a stage. I'm agreeing in my heart and I'm looking. I'm looking into the eyes of the beautiful lamb who was slain. I'm looking at him and I'm praying these. I'm telling him how beautiful he is. I'm telling him how wonderful he is. I see the blood coming off of him and all I can do is celebrate because that's my forgiveness. That's my salvation. I see his tangled body. I see him torn to pieces and I have to celebrate because that's my healing. That's my health. That's my wholeness. He paid all of the prices. All of the prices he paid. He paid the price to deliver us from the sin and the sickness and the torment and the disease. But he also paid the price to deliver us to salvation and to health and to life in the full. It's never a one-way street. It's always a two-way street. And when we give him the stuff, he gives us back so much greater things. It's the best trade in the world. And I'm going to pray these names of God over us tonight. It's very simple. We're just praying the reality of who he says he is, what he loves to do, what he's desiring to do tonight in this house. He's taking loneliness because he's Jehovah Shammah. The Lord is there. He's Emmanuel. He never leaves us or forsakes us. He's taking anxiety off of you because he's Jehovah Shalom, the Lord, our peace. He's taking hurt and rejection, and he's taking the lost. He's taking needs. He's taking hunger because he's Jehovah Ra, the Lord who is my shepherd. He's taking lack and things that you're not enough in. And he's, he's proclaiming that he's Jehovah Jireh, the Lord your provider. It's who he is. It's what he does. He doesn't know how to do otherwise. He's taking the enemy's claim on your life because he's Jehovah Nisi, the Lord who is our banner. He's taking your sin and your shame because he is Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. He's taking your sickness, your pains, your infirmities, your diseases, because he is Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals you.
Yeah, even now he's saying, I'll, I'll take your doubts. I'll take your confusion. I'll shake those things. But I'm going to give you something in return. I'm going to give you wholeness of mind. I'm going to give you wholeness of body. I'm going to give you wholeness of heart. Jesus died for our whole body, soul, mind, spirit. He, he died for it all. There isn't a single part of us that he doesn't have the answer to. Every need that mankind has ever had are in the seven redemptive names of God. And he is those things over you. He, he says, that's who I am in your life. That's what I want to do in your life. It's who, it, it's who you can trust me as. I just encourage you, stretch your hands out high. I just feel like him saying, give it to me. I want that stuff. I paid for it all. It's all my stuff anyways. You're not meant to carry those things. You're not meant to hold those things. You have to have open arms. You have to give me these things. And it's almost like he's putting his foot down and demanding it. He's saying, if you only know how much better the things I'm going to give right back to you. They're way better than those things. Take it, God. Take it all. We hold on to nothing. Nothing. Take whatever you want. Shake whatever you want. Purify whatever you want. Our hearts, our mindsets, our lives, our actions. And so as we're, we're calling out to you, God, tonight as Jehovah Rapha, we're talking about you as God, our healer. I commission this church. Give this to them. Hand it right back to them, God. I commission this church to lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. To act like Jesus when they get around the lame, the dying, the hurt, the lost. I commission you, Reunion, to go and pray, to ask the Lord to lead you to those who he can show himself strong as Jehovah Rapha to. Take him up, take him up on it. It's his gospel, it's not ours. He wants you to take him up on these things. He wants you to trust him in these areas. He paid for it, and it's done. He said it's finished. It's done. And so, Abba, Father, we proclaim your goodness. We proclaim your mercy and your might in this house. You've met every need. You've provided every answer we could ever possibly ask a question to. You are the answer to everything. And so we give you our everything in the greatest exchange known to mankind. We're going to open the front for some prayer ministry. I really feel like there's two groups of people in here tonight uh, that we specifically want to pray for. You can come up for any need. But I really feel like there are people in this room who do not know Jesus as your Lord or your Savior. And he wants to meet you. He wants to encounter you. His name is, I am the God who is your banner. That means he stakes claim over his kids. And he wants to show you his love. He wants to show you what it's like to be his child. So when we open up the front, if that's you, our prayer ministers are going to... Um, actually, can I have the prayer ministers just kind of come up to the front? I want to do it a little differently tonight. If you want to come up to a prayer minister and tell them that's what's on your heart, they'll walk you through getting to know Jesus a lot better than you do right now. I feel like the other group is those who actually need some physical healing. Um, there's nothing special about the front, but I do believe that God honors faith. 
And sometimes it's the actual steps of faith to say, like, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm willing to go take him up on being Jehovah Rapha in my life over this pain, over this sickness, over this infirmity. He's promised it. What do I have to lose? Um, if that's you also, please come to the front. If you need prayer for anything else, the front is open. Um, we don't want to disqualify if that's not what you're here for. But we do, I just wanted to call out those specific things. Um, we had some words of knowledge earlier that we really felt like God was going to heal some stuff. Let me just read those really quickly. Um, left ear problem, uh, deafness, tinnitus, chronic infection. If that's you, make sure and come up and get prayer. I think God's going to heal you. Um, again, if you had something physical stolen, I think God wants to restore that. If you had something spiritual stolen, I think he wants to restore that. Um, someone on our team said they really felt like he wanted to deliver from demonic oppression, from addiction, from possession, from bondage tonight. Um, and th listen, I just need to say this. Shame does not exist in the kingdom. So many people are hesitant to receive prayer because they think that means I'm weak. Let me tell you, I'm the weakest of the weak because in my weakness, he's made strong. And so if you feel weak, that is the perfect opportunity for him to show himself strong. So I bless you, Reunion, tonight. I love you. If you want to hang out and talk, please do so outside. I want to protect this area, and we'll see you guys next week. For more teaching like this, subscribe to this podcast. If you would like more information about Reunion Hawaii Church, our website is reunionhawaii.com. If you're in Honolulu, join us Sundays at 5, live at Kahalama. Aloha.